Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Ephraim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches a mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him. But he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Away, get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest you break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, it is all your word, it is all perfect, it is all intended for the blessing, for the instruction, the rebuke and correction of your people, 
And so we pray it might be found to be so for us this evening. We recognize, Lord, that we are those who have uh, not much wisdom, not much intellect, not much knowledge, and therefore we pray that you would make up for what is lacking, that you'd grant us understanding of this chapter, and that you'd grant us the spiritual blessing to come along with it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so soon it seems we have come to Mount Sinai here in Exodus chapter 19. It says in the, fir- the third month, so we're, this is now just three months since they, they left. The third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Now, Sinai is no small little hill. It is a commanding mountain. And therefore, there is a a wilderness. There is an area there that is called the wilderness of Sinai, taking its name from this mountain. And soon enough, as you know, God is going to give them the law, the Ten Commandments, to them from Mount Sinai in the next chapter, famous chapter of Exodus 20. But before then, there are some preliminaries to take care of, preliminary matters that need to be set straight, and particularly in terms of the larger picture. Before God gives them his law, we need to understand a few things. First of all, what is the relationship between these people and the living God? How does God consider them? What are these people to God? After all, up until recently, Pharaoh actually had these people, and Pharaoh gave them his laws, his rules, and he certainly demanded obedience to them. But there is a great difference between these two situations. Pharaoh, well, these people were nothing but miserable slaves in his estimation, and in reality, that was all that they were, miserable slaves. And that's why they were rescued. And the Lord, well... There's a big difference between the way that Pharaoh thought of these people and commanded them and the way that the Lord thinks of them and gives them his wonderful holy law. These people are not enemies to be slain. They are not slaves to be kept under. They're not a problem to be dealt with. But they are treasure to be cherished. How does the Lord think about them? What is the perspective or the context from which he is going to give them his law, said they are a special treasure to him, that he has sought and bought for himself, and he cherishes them. And what then about obedience? What is the point of that? It seems like they've already been redeemed. In fact, we're going to see later in the prologue to the law, that is precisely his point. They have already been redeemed. What then is the point of, of obedience? Now, beloved, you understand that this has been a problem for Christian theology for a long time, and many Christians of the past, and even right now, and I bet some of you sitting here tonight probably don't quite get it. If indeed we are saved entirely by grace, through faith in Christ alone, then why obey? What is the point of holiness? Well, that's part of what this chapter is about. It's to explain it's not about merit. It's not about earning your way in. They're already in. 
has nothing to do with any kind of transaction, which is the way that we typically think of the world. You put your money into the machine and it gives you the snack that you're looking for. God is not like that. Your obedience does not work that way. It's entirely different. We are holy. We should be holy. We must be holy because God himself is holy. And he commands us to be like him. This is only right that we act in accordance with a high privilege of being in his company. It's the whole point of why he has redeemed us to himself. In order that we would be like him. It's a glorious thing. And before any, I go any further, we just have to consider the way that that would be. Um, I, I'm sure that as children, many of us, maybe particularly the girls, but I think probably some of the boys as well, uh, read fairy tales and wondered what it would be like to be transformed from our ordinary lives, to be royalty, to be princes and princesses. And, and did any of you, former little princesses, think to yourselves, and when I get there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on wearing the nasty T-shirt and, and worn-out uh, you know, clothes that I already have on. And I'm going to keep living like a slob and very ordinary when I'm in that, that palace and castle. Did any of you think that way? Or did you think about how wonderful it would be to be like royalty? Not just to have the, the name, not just to have the address, but actually to live in that sort of way. Well, friends, that's the situation that we have only much better under the living God. He has called us to be part of his people. We are his treasure, and he wants us to live accordingly. That's the reason why we live in a holy way. Unfortunately, it seems that this rather more common community center is intent on roasting us. So forgive me for taking off my jacket. Well, that's the reason why we obey, because we have this high privilege of being in the company of the living God. And I want us to see also that this chapter gives us a perspective of what God is doing in this world. You know that he is sovereign over all things. You understand that he is God over all the earth, and in that way all people owe him obedience, all people owe him worship, and he runs things. But he is not primarily concerned with the larger world out there. He is concerned with, with us. He is concerned with bringing out his own people from that world. Come out of her, my people. And bringing us to another place. Bringing us to another place spiritually and ultimately to another place eternally. Where he gets to be with us and be our God and we get to be his people. And he imparts holiness to us. That's his great project, you see drawing us out of the world, building us up as his own holy people. This is his great project. Not transforming the world as a whole in some amorphous, hard-to-define sort of way, but building up his church. Well, these are the, the useful aspects of this that we should bring to it, but the title tonight is God's Holy People, with these three points. Israel is the Lord's special treasure. God is holy... And the people should act accordingly. Israel is the Lord's special treasure. God is holy. And the people should act accordingly. So first of all, Israel is the Lord's special treasure. It says in verse 3, And Moses went up to to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. 
So if they're wondering what the Lord is thinking about them, if they're wondering what the Lord's intentions are, he is explaining it to them now. And think about the way he describes his redemption, the redemption he's just accomplished three months ago. He performed all those great miracles. He fought with the Egyptians and won. And he bore them away on eagles' wings. That's the way he describes transporting them in this desert wilderness in order to bring them out to himself. Right? He's not taking out the rubbish. He's not getting rid of a problem. He's certainly not doing as he was accused of, of bringing them out until, in order to kill them. Blasphemously accused of. But rather that they could be his own special treasure. It's not even the idea that they are calling out in their distress and he has got a job to take care of because he's, he's compelled, he has this job of being their redeemer and he says, okay, okay, I'll take care of you and get you out of your danger. It's rather like a collector uh, earnestly seeking things that he is collecting and being willing to pay any price and to travel any distance to get the things that he really is looking forward to having. That's his heart to his people. He has found a special treasure, and he has done everything needed to take care of them and to, to, to hoard them, as it were, for himself. Now, it says in verse 5, Now, therefore, if it, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And as I said in the introduction, God is a God of all the earth, and all people owe him worship and obedience, yet he has a special relationship with his own people. He has a special relationship with those in covenant with him that have been brought out from the larger circle of the world's people to be his people, and we must not forget that. That is one of the problems with liberalism when it says, you know, just says blithely without any further qualification, God loves everyone the same. It sounds like something nice to say. Except it's not true, and it's not particularly helpful to God's people. You mean to say that I'm exactly like the pagans, far away from God, hating God and dying in the rebellion, about to face the wrath of God for eternity? Well, no, thankfully not. Uh, God has a way, way higher concern. He does truly love people in, in the sense of doing good to them. But his relationship to us is vastly beyond that. And of course, let me say that this is by definition only if they remain in the relationship. You might say, well, he's, he's saying here, if they obey my voice and keep my, my covenant, then they're in this situation. But not because of merit, not because they will deserve this, not because they will earn this. Rather, by definition, the covenant, well, what sort of covenant is it? Is it a covenant of works? If so, then they need to work to stay in that covenant works. Or is it some other kind of covenant? Is it the kind of covenant that God made with Abraham? Is a covenant of faith. And that's what it is. It's a covenant of faith. So by definition, if they depart the faith, if they apostatize and walk away from God, then they're not his special people. But rather, as they remain within the terms of the covenant and the terms are faith and ultimately in Christ. And that's what they are, his special people. It's a covenant of faith, let's not forget. Now, let's go on to the second half of this chapter, which is indeed a bit difficult for us to, to grasp, to put these two things together. Because we have this statement that God, is this affection that he has for his people, he says, you're my own special treasure. And then the second half seems to be very full of threats and very full of the picture of the, of the wrath and, and judgment of God. How do we put them together? 
Well, the, the picture, if I can just say one thing, if there's one doctrine that is taught in the second half of this chapter, it's simply this, God is holy. Okay? When you look at all this, I want one thing to pop in your mind, God is holy. Let's read some of it. Verse 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And there, you thought my illustration was very trivial, but in fact, the Lord actually cares something about clothes. He says they should wash them because he's going to be in their presence. And therefore, it is right that they have clean clothes. Verse 12, you shall set bounds for all the people all around, saying, take heed yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. Wow. What are we saying there? Friends, our God is not to be dealt with as if he were just some common thing. Uh, It is very much the same situation as what we've discussed this morning with regard to the Holy of Holies. It is not simply to walk in as a sinner, to walk in to a holy God. And there, especially in the days before, the Lord Jesus Christ, his holiness had to be upheld. The separation between a holy God and a sinful people. Now you understand it was not always that way. You understand in the Garden of Eden that they walked together. There was no fear whatsoever. Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, and they walked without fear before the living God, the Lord, probably the pre-incarnate Son of of God, the Lord Jesus uh, Christ, there walking with them. Then as sinners, they were cast out of his presence, out of the, the Garden of Eden, and as sinners, we have no business having anything to do with a holy God. And yet, and yet, the whole point is that God wants us to be with us. And so he's brought out the people. He's there on Mount Sinai in, in a, a special way. You understand God is uh, he's not absent from the world as a whole, but God has a local presence, particularly as we see the, the angel of the Lord there. And he has made his special presence to be on Mount Sinai at that time. And he's brought these people, but they're sinners. And so there's only so far that they can come before they transgress his holiness and take a step too far. And so therefore, anyone who comes, anyone who goes up on the mountain, even touching its base, they'll be put to death. Because this is what happens to sinners who transgress the boundaries that God has given to them. And therefore, we should not. And friends, if you get nothing else from this besides the holiness of God, if you have been enabled to come closer than that, if you have been, by the shed blood of Christ, brought into the Holy of Holies, then you ought to consider the greatness of that privilege. You who have such easy access to the living God, in times past people were stoned for walking on such holy ground. Verse 14, Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes, and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, do not come near your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And you see, the point of that thick cloud is sort of like, again, the veil. The veil was there to obscure, not to let light through, so you couldn't just see. 
The eyes of, of sinners could not look in, even of, of sinful priests who were in the holy part. That they would not just look upon the presence of God there in the mercy seat in the ark. But rather, and, and like this then, the thick cloud has descended in order that they might not gaze upon the Lord. Such is his holiness, such is the sin of man, that these things must be kept separate. And so it says, there's this warning in verse 21, a warning against gazing upon the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. And, and the, Moses is, as he sometimes does, replying to the Lord and, and sort of using his own reasoning, which is a little bit limited sometimes, being just as a man like the rest of us. And says, look, I've already told them that there is, you shouldn't come up the mountain. I'm sure they, weren't, they wouldn't be dumb enough to do it. And the Lord says, uh, no, actually, I think they are going to be dumb enough. You better go down and warn them again in more certain terms. Away, get down and then and come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Friends, he's a holy God. He is a holy God. He's not to be trifled with. And, you know, uh, the, the Lord warns that you thought I was altogether such a one as one of you. We sometimes imagine, we try to make God in our own image, that he is just a slob. There's some horrible pop song I remember. What if God was a slob like one of us? Well, he's not. He isn't. He's holy. And the Lord compares himself to a fire. That's what he is. Our God is a consuming fire. So when we see these pictures of, of a burning fire and a burning holiness, when we see a picture of a fire that is ready to leap out and to destroy the sinners that would dare to transgress the boundaries appointed to them and to come into the presence of a living God without leave to do so, we are reminded that he is very different than sinners. And therefore there is this danger associated with God. You know, I'm reminded also of this situation in 1 Samuel where the Lord... Now, the Lord, uh, as I say, we understand that, that there is a, a sense in which um, God is truly everywhere. That's true. But he especially appointed his tabernacle, and within the tabernacle particularly the ark, to uh, demonstrate the presence of the living God on earth. And the Philistines captured the ark. And what happened to them? You remember Right? The, the ark is there in the presence of their horrible, demonic, uh, idol, Dagon. And first Dagon falls down. Um, and then they, they put Dagon back up. And the next time the Lord does it even more. And then his, his head and hands and so forth are broken off. And they say, what are we going to do? So they send, they send the ark to some other Philistine city. And he sends a plague upon them. And they're dying like flies. And they finally return. We'd better return this ark to the Israelites before we all die. And that's what they do. And then, so we're, we, we work through the Philistines. None of them want anything to do with the ark anymore. They've had enough of dealing with a holy God who will not be trifled with. And then even the Israelites. In 1 Samuel 6.19, such a tragic story. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Imagine that. They decide to pry into the secret things of the Lord. Without leave to do so, they open up the ark to take a look. And he struck 
50,000 and 70 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And that was their, the, the typical response of man is to say, whoa, God is terrible for doing that. And they themselves were lamenting that God had done this. What they should have done is lamented uh, that they were so bold and so rebellious as to do these things. Mere creatures of the dust to so boldly pry into the secret things of the Lord. But here's a, here's, here's a conclusion of it. At the end of the chapter, verse 20, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Friends, words we need to understand. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Friends, God is holy. And no sinner on his own behalf is able to stand before him. He is a consuming fire. Well, that's God. Thirdly, Israel must be holy. Israel should act in accordance with the holiness of God by themselves, acting like this God that they are, and to be holy. And returning now back to verse 6, it says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, let me just say, we don't know anything. The world doesn't know anything about kingdoms of priests. Uh, We know lots about there being priests, even as there were in the Old Testament. God himself in his own appointment did not appoint all the people, all the tribes to be priests, but one tribe, the Levites, to be a priestly tribe, and even among them, different jobs, and some of them were given to be priests, and they were to deal with all the rest of the people. Now, was there anything different about those priests? Absolutely. They had all sorts of rules concerning their conduct that were higher. There was a higher standard set with regard to the clothes they wore, the hairstyles they had, with regard to who they could marry and who they couldn't, with regard to all sorts of things related to their duties as priests, because they were supposed to live in a more holy, set-apart way than the others. Now, we know this being the Old Testament, it, it, it so much had to do with outward sort of things, but all that is pointing to the inward reality of holiness. And the Lord is saying, ultimately, what I'm looking for is not just for one tribe that is a priest, but for a whole nation that live according to the highest standards of holiness, being set apart from this world and devoted to me. Because that's the thing. Those things go together. You can't be devoted to the Lord without also being set apart from the world. And you can't be set apart from the world unless you're devoted to something. And hopefully that's being devoted to the Lord. Now, I want to say that they're holy both by definition and by practice. I said this when we were in Deuteronomy. And I'll say it again, that they are indeed holy by definition. By the mere fact of God choosing the people, choosing us, we have been set apart. He has chosen us. Uh, there there's, can be some sort of produce. And there's all this produce that's there at the supermarket. And it, it, there's no difference between it. But once you have now chosen that and, and brought it home for yourself, that's, that's going to be your dinner. And, it's, and it has a different status um, by virtue of you having chosen it above the other things that were there. Well, God has done that with us. We are his covenant people. Little children, in fact, if you, have, you are part of a covenant family and you've been baptized, you have been set apart by definition um, by, by God's choice. But then there's also holy, holiness in terms of practice. 
It is our status. By definition, we are holy if we're God's people. And then there's the practice of being different. Deuteronomy 7 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. You've been set apart from common use. And therefore, we do the things that are in accordance with his own special usage. The people around them worshiped idols. He says, Don't do it. The people around them worshiped in a way that was abhorrent to him. And he says, don't do it. The people around sacrificed their children. The people around committed adultery and fornication. The people's, and God says, don't do it. Be holy, like I am holy. And he calls them then to a life, to a practice of holiness. Now, friends, again, holiness is, has come on in bad terms, bad days uh, in our time. Fallen on hard times. And sometimes... Holiness is accounted or thought immediately as some kind of self-righteousness. And that anyone who speaks even of holiness must be talking about a gospel works. But friends, that's just not it. There must be a concern, an abiding and deep concern for personal holiness among God's people. Because that's what he's bought us for. He's redeemed us in order that we might do these good works. He's called us apart in order that we might be more like him and live a life that is set apart from the world. That we might be his, his people that he, he shows off to the world. Like he did with Job. He says, have you considered, even to, to Satan himself, have you considered my servant Job? He's not like those other losers. He's, a, he's, he's one of mine. He's holy, he's righteous, and he lives differently. And in fact, no matter what you do, he's going to cling to me in faith, and he's going to... Uh, not, uh, not turn away. Well, friends, we must be holy, both in our status, by definition, and also in practice. Now, the good news here, let me, uh, I'll, I'll mention again, First uh, Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's, that's what he's done. He's called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. It doesn't make sense unless we're living in that light. And it doesn't do too much good unless we're also willing to proclaim it. This is part of our work as God's holy people, as the priests of God. And I want to say that the, the, the good news here is that the people are willing, at least at this moment. In verse 7, So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. Then the people all answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So this proposition, which he's given to them, and because that's in essence what it is. He said, I want you to be my special people. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to receive my covenant and live accordance with my, my word? And the people says, yes. We want to be your people. We want to obey your word. And so, on the eve of the the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, we have a revelation not only of the heart of the God who redeemed him and said, this hasn't been some chore for me, and I'm certainly not trying to get rid of you. Uh, I have collected you as a collector, some beloved new treasure, and I've brought you out to myself because I love you. And the people have responded when given the opportunity because Moses is the mediator. He's going up and down that mountain. The Lord says something to him. He goes down and talks to the people. Then he reports back to God and tells him what the people says. And he says, the people 
want this. Everything that you said, they, they agree with, and they want now to hear your word. And I guess I'd ask, is that your heart? Is that your heart? Do you say, yes, we want to hear this word of God? Yes, we want to be his people. We want to live in accordance with these things. Or is there rebellion in our hearts? Well, again, this is the holiness of God. This is the holiness of his people. This is what we are called to be as God's holy people. And the first thing that I would say to us is that we ought to be a kingdom of priests. Did you know that there is a sense in which every believer is prophet, priest, and king? I hope I've said this at some other point. Christ himself, you know those are the offices that, that, that Christ has. He's prophet, he speaks to us, he's a, he speaks the word of God to those who are ignorant. He's priest, as we saw this morning, laying down his life. He is both the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies on our behalf, and he is the sacrifice, and he continually gives, makes intercession. All the things that any high priest ever did, he does and more. And king, he rules us. And there are senses in which all of God's people are like these. And, but of all the things, we're, we're maybe a little bit less kings in some way than, than some of the others. Uh, we're certainly called to be prophets, to speak the word of God. But friends, we are of all things most supremely to be priests. Supremely to be priests because we are continually uh, living a life that is distinct from the world around us. We're all, we are that kingdom uh, that God wanted. And you can imagine the, the nonsense then of anyone who would say that actually we, that God wants you to live as much like the world as you possibly can. The whole point is he wants you to be distinct. Not fake in that. Not acting as a hypocrite, something that you're not. That's what he complained against the Pharisees. The whole point is he wants you to really, in the deepest reality, to be deeply different than the world that is around, as much as possible. That's the point. Be priest. Be holy. Secondly, as a word about the, or a, a, a teaching about the word of God that we should know. In verse 9 it says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and believe you forever. And the application is that you should have confidence in the word of God. You know, there's so much in this chapter, but that is surely one of the things that we should consider. How did this word come to us? Can we trust it? And the answer is yes, we can. God made provision. And every time that he revealed his word, he made provision in order that people might have solid confidence for all generations, both at the time and subsequently, to know that this really did come from him. And beloved, that's the word that we have. The word that he spoke on that day thousands of years ago. We still have it. It's perfectly here, written for our benefit. And he said, I'm going to show signs and wonders and miracles. I'm going to make my presence known in supernatural way in order that the people will have perfect confidence that when you come down and speak on my behalf, that they understand that this is the word of the living God. Well, at every occasion, as prophets from old or the apostles spoke, they came with supernatural miracles to establish the reality of what was said. And we understand that we have perfect confidence in this word. So we should be priests. We should be that holy nation. We should have confidence in the word of God. And we should understand the nature of God's project in this world.
Now, some of you have heard many times, maybe to some of you, though, it's a new idea or news to you that in our time, uh, the mission of the church is under tremendous pressure to be changed into something else. It's always interesting to me that uh, when I was a new Christian, the social gospel was spoken of with great contempt. It was spoken of as an as a enemy that had been vanquished a long time ago and was not expected ever to come back. Friends, it has. It has. In fact, it is coming on like a flood, and not just in far distant reaches, but our brother Josh Rieger sent a report from the conference at Affinity, and yes, I must name names, Affinity, an organization which Martin Lloyd-Jones had much to, to do in bringing into existence, was there specifically for Reformed churches. The main uh, paper having to do with missions was entirely about the work uh, of transforming this current world, of making the world a better place. Dreadful. The, the social gospel increasingly has become the de facto orthodoxy of our day. But friends, what is the heart of God that you see? Don't listen to them. What do you see in the word of God in Exodus chapter 19? What do you see? You see that God's concern is about his own people. You see that God's concern is with his covenant people, with Israel, to be that king, to be kings and priests separate from the world. What, where is the mandate to transform this current world and to, to be in some, uh, to, that the great effort of God's people is to be there indistinguishable from the world and making the world in a slightly different way than, than what it is. That's not his mission. That's not his concern. His mission is with his people to build them up, to make them distinct, to make them the bride for his son. What is at the end of all this? Is the Lord looking forward to, to bringing his son to a, a wonderful party for artists in which the artists are have slightly more Christian than they used to be. It's pathetic. Not at all. What he is looking for and what he is willing to do anything. In, in fact, if he's willing, he's willing to lay down the life of his own beloved son in order to make it happen is a bride. And not just any old bride, but a spotless, perfect, beautiful bride that has been called out of the world to be conformed to the image of his son, to be the source of joy for his son for all eternity. And what about this current world? What's going to happen to it? Friends, it's going to burn. Okay? Christians of previous generations understood that much. We've forgotten it. Now, does that mean we all abandon our vocation? Certainly not. Does that mean that we abandon the idea of loving our neighbor? Certainly not. It's all the more reason. It's all the more platform to do it. We can be distinct. We can do them good because we are different. Salt and light in a dark, tasteless, insipid world. That's what we are. But if the salt loses its saltiness, stops being distinct, decides that the salt, I don't really want to be so distinct, I want to kind of blend in the world and diffuse myself in some way, well, then the salt has lost its saltiness and it's good for nothing except to be trampled underfoot. And if the light decides I'm going to hide my light and, and blend in and, and maybe in some sort of secret way have a, you know, a little thing here or a little there that maybe no one will notice as distinctively Christian, well, that's called hiding your light under a bushel. It does nobody any good. It must be, uh, you know that light when it's diffused really doesn't do much. But if it's focused, if it's pure, it's a laser that can cut steel. Do you know that? It's true. 
And friends, that's what God has called us to to do. To be pure, to be focused, to be like him in our holiness. And in fact, we can do much good in this world. Not because that's our mission, though the mission of the church. that's That's not the issue. But rather, even as we are doing as we are called to do, to serve in our vocations and to be like him as much as possible, then we will certainly and inevitably, in ordinary situations, as a byproduct, make the world a better place. It works that way. It works that way. Now let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we're thankful. This is indeed your heart to your people. You are nothing like Pharaoh hating his people, seeking to get rid of them, seeking to do whatever harm he possibly could. You're not even as one performing some errand because you were compelled to do so out of some obligation that you mistakenly made to Abraham a long time ago. But rather, Lord, it was your delight to redeem your own people. It was Christ's delight to redeem for himself a people that would be his own special treasure out of all the world, a nation of kings and priests living distinctly different lives and worshiping the living God in accordance with your own word, living in accordance, yes, with the moral law that you gave at Mount Sinai. Heavenly Father, truly you are a holy God, and none in ourselves as sinners can dwell safely with you. We are thankful that through Jesus Christ a way has been opened, a way has been made that we might live with a holy God. And that we have the privilege now of living as your kings and priests. And particularly, Lord, that you would enable us to be distinct from the world. We pray your help. We pray also, Lord, that you would grant us the fullest confidence in the word of God that is given to us. A word that if we believe it, will save us. Help us, Lord, to receive it with implicit and complete trust. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.